0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 4 through 7 and Philippians chapter 4 verses 11 through 13. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fightings without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound." In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is God's word. Amen. Thank
1: you, Susan. Good morning. Uh, Good to see so many of you Uh, at the beginning of this summer. You can tell it's summer. I started to go through the list of people that I knew that were out of town, and I I told the kids on the way here, you know, guys, we might be the only people at church this morning. So it is fun to see that, that some others came out, so thank you for being here. What we usually do during the summer, in case you're wondering, we, we take a break from our normal series. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke for some time now, and actually we will not finish until next Easter. We'll do the Easter narrative in Luke next Easter. Uh, so we still have some time there, but for about 12 weeks here in the summer, between now and the time that school goes back in, we typically do a, a, some kind of topical series that are standalone texts because we realize that people are, are coming and going a whole lot. And so we, we try to kind of sh- change it up a little bit. And, and one of the things that I wanted to do, I've been reading two books uh, that really will, um, we're going to borrow extensively from these two resources uh, throughout the summer. If you wanted to buy them and read them, uh, that'd be great. The first is uh, Spiritual Depression by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, which I've referred to over and over again over the last few months. So, uh, you know, we've been reading that as a staff. The second one is a book called Walking with God Through Suffering by Tim Keller, who's a pastor in our denomination in New York City. And both of those books really really make the point that um, as our culture begins to become increasingly secularized, one of the fallouts of secularism, which, which I'm going to argue this morning, we are far more influenced uh, by this force of secularism in our culture uh, than we really are even our Christian life and worldview. And one of the fallouts of of the secularization of our culture is is, is how ill-fitted we are as a people because of some of the implications of secularism to really deal with suffering. Uh, And most of the people that come in my office that I sit and talk with, most of you that I have any time with, you know, kind of the universal thing that's happening in our church and in our culture is we're all going through hard times, we're all going through struggles, we're all dealing with storms that we have to face, and the problem is is our culture is doing nothing to help us. But the Christian gospel does. And so that little phrase there from the, the old song that some of you probably sang growing up in church, Just As I Am, Fightings, within and fears with, fightings Without and Fears Within, uh, we're going to really take that phrase and we're going to spend all summer talking about, uh, you know, what it looks like for us to go through life that's full of storms. Hebrews 6 says that the gospel promises that the scripture gives us are like an anchor to the soul that help us hold fast, is the way that, that the Hebrews writer puts it. When the winds and the waves begin to blow in life, and it's a really helpful metaphor uh, that I want to use. I, I kind of want to come back to it over and over again throughout the summer. And it's helpful for us because so many of, of us have boats. And when you're on a boat and you, you're trying to get in exactly the right place to be able to cast into the fishing hole that's on the GPS that you're trying to get to, use an anchor. And the purpose of the anchor is to keep you in place. And, and, and in that, you're fighting two things. You're fighting against the external forces like the wind and the waves that would blow you off the spot. And you want to stay put there. But you're also battling the subterranean force, the current, the, the flow of the water that's you know you can't see. But that's happening as the tides come in and come out. And that's really the metaphor that I want us to keep in mind as we go throughout this series. The Apostle Paul reports to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, he says, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, and fear within. And it's that phrase that I think describes what life is like for so many of us. There are the fightings without that we deal with, right? There are the external sadnesses and sufferings, things like financial troubles or relational conflict, or one of your kids gets into trouble and you start to worry about them. Or just loneliness. And then, as if that's not enough to face, there are often the fears within. There's the internal subterranean explosions, storms like anxiety and depression and fear, failure, and shame. And for some people, the internal stuff is even more profound and more significant than the external. Everything might be going fine, you know, out here, but inside uh, it's not. It might be calm, calm seas, no wind, but underneath you're raging inside its hurricane force winds. And Paul says, both, if you see there, both of these afflict, is his word. That's the word. And the word refers to the process of squeezing or pressing grapes or olives to get the juice, to get the oil out of them. And so the only, you know, the only analogy, immediately the analogy when I thought about that came to mind is. Looking forward to the Star Wars movie that's coming out later this year, if you remember the very first Star Wars movie, when Leia and uh, Han Solo and Luke find themselves, they're trying to escape the Death Star, and they find themselves in the trash compactor. Do you remember that scene? And pretty soon they realize the walls are caving in, and they're about to be literally squished to death. That that really is the experience. That's the experience of these fightings without and the fears within. They squeeze, they create pressure so that we lose heart, so that we, we begin to be even more full of self-concern than before. We lose our ability to move out. We don't love well. And so, so much, so much of the Christian life is learning how to face suffering well. So much of the Christian life is learning how to face suffering well, and our, our culture has really failed us. So, that's what I want to talk about this morning, is how Christianity really steps in where the culture has really failed to help us as we kind of this is kind of a, a preview of this entire series that we're going to do this summer, if you would. Just kind of going through some of the themes that we'll come back to as we go along. So if there's stuff and you're like, oh, 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 I wish that you would you really stay there and park on that, we probably will come back to it. The other thing I should warn you about is I've really been reading a lot, and so I'm compiling a lot of material, which means I'm gonna quote way too many people way too often this morning. I know that's hard, so just bear with me, because these are again, these are things we're gonna come back to. So if there's themes that you would hope that we would stay on longer, probably at some point in the next 12 weeks we'll be back to them. But here's what I want you to see, okay? Where Christianity really does help us and our cultures really failed us, there's three things about about these storms that I think our faith really does help us. It helps us to face the inevitability of them, first of all. Secondly, it really does provide comfort for us in the middle of going through these kinds of storms. And then thirdly, it also gives us a power, not only to endure, but we actually can begin to affect Change in the midst of them. Okay, so the inevitability of storms, comfort in the middle of storms, and the power not only to endure but to change them. All of that's here in these verses from Paul's letters. So let's just start first. Uh, it really does, we really are kind of pointed towards the inevitability because there are these two types of storms, as I've said. So let's look at that verse again. When Paul comes to Macedonia, he says, this was him, he says, "Fighting's without. Okay? This, this was his experience. So everywhere he went, there was opposition to his ministry. He went from city to city, uh, to the next to the next. And the, and the gospel's exploding all around him. It's, and, and, and every time the gospel begins to explode in his ministry, there's a counter-explosion of persecution, typically from the Jewish religious communities. So much so, if you look there in those verses, he says, our bodies had no rest. I mean, they were exhausted mentally, physically. They couldn't... There, there was so much pressure... So much, you know, so much turmoil that they, they literally couldn't even lay down and take a break. Later in this, um, in this same book, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he goes on to list the, kind of the things he's mentioning in, gen, you know, in general here and very much in specifics. He says, here's his list. There were imprisonments, that's plural, imprisonments. Beatings, often near death, five times, 40 lashes less one. Three times beaten with rods, once stoned, only once. Right? He got off easy with the stoning, only one time. In Lystra, which we read from Acts chapter 14 this past week. Three times shipwrecked. I mean that, come on, three times shipwrecked. Okay, stay off the boats, right? Yeah, <laughs> everywhere he goes, shipwrecked. Frequent journeys. He worked away from home. In constant danger, toil and hardship, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst cold and exposure. Well, that's some kind of list. But that was Paul's life. And here's the thing. It was the life he chose. He lived like that on purpose. And what he's doing there is Paul makes this list in 2 Corinthians 11 to make a case for his apostleship, to distinguish his ministry from the other super apostles or the false apostles. In other words, what he's doing there is he's reminding the Corinthians that the authentication of his ministry was the fact that he endured all these sufferings. They were the badge, so to speak, of his apostleship. The authentication of his ministry, which of course means that they would also be the authentication of our discipleship and our sufferings. And to this we object. We really do. I'm I'm not willing to go there. But in objecting, what happens is is we reveal that we are far more influenced by secularism, secularism than by the worldview and the teachings of the Bible. We are too often secular first, then Christian. And secularism is the view, now dominating our culture, that the material world, what we see, what you can see and observe, is really all there is. Now, of course, as Christians, we we absolutely reject this. We don't believe the Bible teaches that. The problem is, is we're still greatly influenced by it. Okay? See, if the material world is all there is, then the meaning of life is to have the freedom to choose the life that makes you happy. Francis Schaeffer made the observation that he said, personal peace, this is the way he put it, personal peace and affluence are really the dominant cultural values in our society. Personal peace and affluence. In other words, being left alone to pursue whatever form of individual happiness and freedom you desire and, uh, and the, the affluence, the, the material resources that you need to be able to do that. And that was 40 years ago. He wrote that 40 years ago. Personal peace and affluence. And you see the problem, if that's your goal, then the life that Paul chose is nonsensical and it possibly is even immoral. In fact, our culture has no narrative that explains the value of the kind of life Paul strived for. And in a secular culture, the choice to be Christian is often made. I mean, this is what I was thinking about this this, this week. To be a Christian still in many ways in our culture is made because it is seen as an asset to whatever other goals the person or the family has and not a liability. And the reality is this should sober us. Where Christianity is still growing or it still has a foothold in our culture, by which I mean mainly in the South, I fear it's, be- it's because being religious, being Christian in those places is still an important step towards other goals like social standing and respectability or even business success and networking. But well, what happens? What happens in our culture when it turns and being a Christian is no longer an asset, but it really becomes a liability? What happens when you begin to lose clients? What happens when your friends distance themselves from you because of your faith commitments? What happens then? And that, for me, is where the rubber really meets the road for a lot of us. Richard Swider, an anthropologist, uh, made, he, made one of, he notes that one of the consequences of the grip of secularism on all of us is that we begin to view suffering as, and these are his words, let me quote him, separated from the narrative structures of human life, a kind of noise, he says. An accidental interference into the drama of the sufferer. It has no intelligible relation to any plot except as a chaotic interruption. So whereas older cultures and non-Western cultures today, in those cultures suffering has been seen as an expected part of a coherent life story, and doing suffering well as part of living well. Western secularism has stripped us of any sense of this, right? Our culture has no sense of that. Other cultures, both pre-modern and non-Western but modern today, make the highest purpose of life something besides personal peace and affluence. In those cultures, life's ultimate meaning might be found in being a person of virtue. It might be having your life swept up into a cause that's bigger than you. It might become being a person that the community admires, whatever the case may be. In all of those cultural narratives, suffering is an important part of achieving those larger goals. And for them, Paul's life makes sense. But in our culture, hardships, the fightings without, and the fears within that he experienced in his ministry, these are seen as interruptions. They're seen as problems to be solved, obstacles to be avoided at all costs. But for Paul... They were part of the everyday life of a person trying to follow Jesus, to be expected in faith, embraced with patience, and ultimately overcome. But Paul says not only were there the fightings without. He said, when I came to Macedonia, there was also these, fight, these, these fears within. You see that there in that verse? And this probably refers to the trouble between Paul and the people that he's writing to. This is his second letter to them, this letter to the Corinthians. In his first, he was rather harsh with them. They took offense uh, and really got upset with him. And so the fear that he's describing here is the pain of the broken relationship between he and the Corinthians. And it created this internal storm, this, this raging inside, these fears within that Paul says is also part of our experience. Now, one of my favorite stories in the Gospels, and I find myself going back to it over and over again, and you probably do too, is where Jesus and his disciples are in the boat on the Sea of Galilee and the storm comes up. Uh, and and the, the funny thing, it's, it's almost a comical story because the storm comes up on the sea and then what happens is the storm comes up on the inside. And the disciples are there in the boat and they begin to panic and they're sure they're going to die. And the storm is raging on the sea and it's raging within them too. And, and the best part of the whole story is as they're just raging inside and freaking out about what's going on. Do you remember what Jesus is doing? He's asleep. Now, both the disciples and Jesus are in the storm, but there's stark contrast, and it's this, that while the storm rages around them, both, the storm is raging only within the disciples. Jesus is being kept, as the psalmist says, or as Isaiah said, in perfect peace by his trust in his Father. So much so, that just like the psalmist sings in our call to worship, he lies down to sleep, knowing that his Father's care is all that he needs, that he dwells in safety in his Father's hands, no matter how the storm around him howls. And the lesson is this, that the inner storm, the inner storm is the thing that makes life's storms unbearable. That the inner storm of anxiety and fear and a sense of abandonment that the disciples are dealing with here, that's really what made the storm, it transformed it into a mega storm. And they began to fall apart. And so do we. Now Paul goes on to say, this is the best part of this, of this verse. If you look there in verse 4 of chapter 7, He goes on to say that though he's feeling this pressure, the walls are starting to cave on to him, both on the inside and the outside. He's afflicted, but then he says this strange thing there in verse 4. He says, and yet we were overflowing with joy. So he isn't sleeping, but he's overflowing with joy. It's a similar similar kind of description as to the one in chapter 5 of this letter in 2 Corinthians, where he says that we were afflicted but not crushed. We were perplexed but not in despair. We were persecuted but not forsaken. We were struck down but we were not destroyed by it. So according to every other logic that you and I could come up with, this should be an either or. An either or proposition. Either I'm so stressed I can't sleep or I'm overflowing with joy but I don't know anybody and and if I'm wrong, please come so we can, you know, we probably should bow down and like hail you. I don't know anybody who does those things at the same time. Right? Either I'm stressed out so much I can't sleep or There's so much joy in my life that it's just popping out of me and overflowing in all these other places. But Paul says that with him, and I think by implication with us, it should not be that this is an either-or thing, but it should be a both-and. He says there's so much pressure that I can't sleep. But at the same time, in the midst of that experience, I'm overflowing with joy. It's absolutely stunning. And it's the second point, that there are gospel comforts to help us weather the external and the internal storms. Now contrast this with the way that we deal with suffering. We typically see affliction, external affliction and pressure and internal joy and peace as an either-or thing. That when the storm comes, what happens to us most times is it takes away our calm. We melt down. We begin to despair. Or we get angry, we get willful, and we fight back against it. But the Christian is different. I mean, the Christian is different. In fact, I, I read this week that the early Christian church Uh, in the first two or three centuries of Christianity, argued for the validity of their faith to the pagan world around them. The the best argument they had for the fact that Jesus was real and the things they they were saying should be listened to by the pagan world, Uh, they they argued for the validity of their faith by their ability to suffer better than the pagan people around them. They said, this really does make a difference. Because you see, the Christian has internal strength and resources that make it possible for him to face the problem, to feel the pressure, and to not lose joy in the process. The storm is raging, and he can lay down and sleep. So this is the problem we're trying to solve this morning. How do we become like that? How do you get like that? See, if, if when the storm hits you, you collapse into despair, then you'll quit. You'll tap out. But if you get angry, if you get willful, if you fight back, and you throw all your resources at the problem, then what happens then is often you become easily frustrated with people who get in the way, you become impatient, you, you lack joy until you fix it. Both are dangerous and sinful, and the root of both is unbelief. But something happens to Paul here that's absolutely amazing. A supernatural work of God in his life. He was comforted, he says. And that word really dominates these verses, doesn't it? Look, look down there at verse, verses 5-7 through seven again. When we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted, he says, fighting without fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he comforted, he was comforted by you. So four times there, he uses that word comfort. And, and this is fun because, I, you know, I, I, uh, I wonder, man, he so much emphasis on that word, I wonder what the word is. So I went and... I I used to, you know, when you come out of seminary, you're a little cocky because you can actually read out of your Greek New Testament. It's been a long time now, and I don't do that anymore. Jeff does probably, but I don't. So I had to look this up. But the Greek word there is, uh, I was surprised to find, that, that the Greek word is the word perikaleo. So he says, God perikaleos, the downcast, he parakaleoed us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the parakaleo with which he was parakaleoed by you. It's the word for the Holy Spirit, and it refers to the ministry of coming alongside of another person to walk beside them and encourage them, particularly in a hard time. So God sent the Spirit to be a teacher, a helper, a comforter. He's described as all of these things. And I think this teaches us a really, a really important lesson, actually. Something really important, and that is this, that the, that the real affliction in affliction I mean, the real affliction, under whatever affliction you might be going through. The real affliction in affliction is the feeling that I'm all alone. A storm is really a reality check. What it does is, is it makes me face reality. In a storm, I'm confronted with the truth. I'm up against forces that I can't control, and I'm part of the problem. I'm not in control, and there's no one to help. That's the affliction. Right? Are you with me? That was so tangible for me in my own life. That's, that's when I am, I am up against something I can't control. I'm part of the problem, so I can't fix it, and there's nobody else to help me. Tim Keller in his book on suffering, which I mentioned at the beginning, makes the point that the existential storm underneath the storms in our lives is the question, why? Why is this happening? Why me? Why now? Why my child? Why this? And this is where secularism really fails us, because if there's nothing beyond the physical material world, then there's no answer to the why. There's absolutely no answer to the why. Richard Dawkins, probably the prominent, most prominent secular atheist of our, of our age, he, 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 these are his words. He says, in a universe of blind physical forces, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it nor any justice. Listen to what he says. He says, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. See, the storm is beyond me, but what's beyond the storm? That's the question, isn't it? Richard Dawkins says, nothing but pitiless indifference. There's no purpose in our circumstances. There's no one there. There's no reason for anything that happens in life. And whether we admit it or not, when we collapse into despair, ...or jump into action in response to suffering... ...we've bought that lie. At the heart of the universe is pitiless indifference. So what's the point? Or, pitiless indifference. So I better do the best I can... ...because if I don't, nobody else will. It's all up to me. But God comforts Paul here. You see that? And the word, the word means... ...God comforts him with his presence. I think that's the implication of the passage... That we are not alone, as the secularists tell us, in our suffering. That there is an answer to the why. There is purpose in the painful things that are happening to me. Because beyond the storm is not pitiless indifference, but a loving father. And though it's impossible to know the specifics, there are some things that we can absolutely be sure of. Let me just count them off for you. We can be sure. We can be sure that God is concerned about us as a father, and that nothing happens to a single one of us apart from him. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will. Every hair on every head in this room are all numbered. That God's will, we can be sure God's will and God's ways are a great mystery for sure. I don't know all of the reasons why, but I can know this. Whatever he wills or permits is of necessity for my good. That every situation we can know, every situation in life is the unfolding of some manifestation of His love and goodness, that nothing, the Scripture says, can separate us from His love. And we can know, I mean, this is just a, just a few things, but, and we can know, therefore, if all of those things are true, therefore, I must view my circumstances and conditions not in and of themselves, but as a part of God's dealing with me as a loving Father in the work of perfecting my soul and redeeming the whole creation from sin and death. Let me quote Tim Keller again. He says, Christianity teaches that contra fatalism suffering is overwhelming contra buddhism suffering is real contra karma suffering is often unfair but contra secularism suffering is meaningful listen this is fra- oh this is so good he says there's a purpose in it and if faced rightly even suffering can drive us like a nail deep into the love of god and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine but how how So let's just take some time to rehearse the gospel together. Can we? Two doctrines particularly of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, the incarnation and the atonement. And the doctrine of the incarnation teaches us that God isn't indifferent to the suffering of the world. He didn't remain aloof. Isn't that what we believe? He is with us. He has come down in Jesus Christ and has experienced its darkness. Jesus has identified with our suffering. In the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his crucifixion, he faced the fightings without. They were coming to arrest him. The violence of the soldiers coming to... To arrest him in the hostility of the religious leaders who would condemn him unfairly in their courts. And he also faced the fears within, didn't he? The deep loneliness and isolation of being in the garden by himself. And the great, the great anxiety that was so profound in him that he literally began to drop sweat drops of blood. The Bible says that he's identified with us. And because he's identified with us like this, then he can help us through them. He's a faithful high priest who is compassionate he sympathizes he's compassionate with us so here christian if you're here if you're if you're here you're not a christian you got to make sense of what richard Dawkins says but if you're here and you're a christian let me ask you ask this question what's beyond the storm what's beyond the storm it's not pitiless indifference it's a compassionate savior so the doctrine of the incarnation helps us i think but also the doctrine of the atonement and the doctrine of the atonement teaches us that God has given us in, in Christ the resources that we need to flourish in suffering. In Jesus' death upon the cross, in our place. Robert Murray McShane, the great Scottish preacher, reflected on Jesus' sufferings on the cross with these words, and they were really profound. He says, he was without any comforts of God. Remember Paul says, I was comforted? Listen to the, this is so. This is so parallel. He, McShane says, he was without any comforts of God. No feeling that God loved him. No feeling that God pitied him. No feeling that God supported him. God was his son before, now that son became all darkness. He was without God, as if he had no God. He was godless, deprived of God. I said earlier that the real affliction, and any affliction is the feeling alone. On the cross, Jesus experienced cosmic aloneness. But it was something far worse than pitiless indifference. Instead of a loving father, instead of a loving father... Jesus met God as an angry judge. But here's the gospel. The gospel for you and me is that because he went without any comforts of God, the result is that you and I never have to live without him. See, Paul's circumstances didn't change. He still faced the same pressures. There was still persecution when he went on from Macedonia and into the rest of his ministry, there were still beatings, there were still sleepless nights, but there were also the comforts. God loves me, he's compassionate, he supports me, he's working to do me good, nothing can separate me from his love, he says, and his sufferings drove him like a nail deep into the love of God. We're going to talk a lot about that in the weeks to come. Now before I move on to the last point, I want to make one point of application, if you would, that I think the text warrants, and it's this, that in both 2 Corinthians 7 and in Philippians 4, the tangible experience of God's comfort in Paul's life came through his experience of Christian community. So, look at 2 Corinthians 7 6. Paul says, God comforted me. But in the very next phrase, he says that God comforted him by the coming of Titus. So, God's comfort came to him. His presence and his support in his afflictions became real to Paul by the presence and the support of his friend Titus, who came with the news of the Corinthians' love and support for Paul. Isn't that great? Now, the Hebrews writer reminds us that we are to, in the gospel, that we are to exhort, which is the word parakaleo, exhort one another every day so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, church, listen. We have the power to encourage or to discourage one another. Life is hard. Everybody's going through a battle. Everybody in this room is going through some fierce battle, and we have the power to fill one another with courage that we need or to take it away. God has made it this way. And so, let me just pastorally say, be kind. For most people, for most people, please, for most people, your criticism, your correction won't be what moves them forward. But your presence and your support will. And it's not just a one-time thing. He says, paracleo one another every day. Every day. Because it's that necessary. Okay, but let's finish up. Lastly... Lastly, we see not only the inevitability of these things, but also the comfort that we can find in them. But then there's also the power to endure, not only to endure, but to also change the circumstances we find ourselves in. We don't have a lot of time, so I'm introducing some things that we'll come back to. Let me go back to secularism one last time. In secularism, suffering always has a material cause, and therefore it can, in theory, be fixed. So the way to handle suffering is to look for the cause of the pain and eliminate it. Do whatever you have to do. C.S. Lewis, as usual, said what I'm trying to say best. He said this, and this is so prophetic. He says, says, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem has been how to conform the soul to reality. And the solution has been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. But for the modern man, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. And the solution is technique. Now, C.S. Lewis says it used to be, That we understood that the work we had to do was within ourselves. That we had to bring ourselves into submission to God's will and to get okay with what God was doing around us, okay? Because there's a design and there's something God's doing. And flourishing comes when you get in line with what God is doing. But nowadays, he says, and this again was 50 years ago. Can you imagine what he would say of our culture today? 50 years ago, he said. Nowadays, in the modern times, in the 50s. (laughs) We flip this. He says... We, we're trying, we, we try, uh, the problem we're trying to solve now is we're trying to subdue reality by our wishes and our desires. We're trying to change the very reality of things because we don't like the way they are. The problem's out there, right? The problem's out there. I have to subdue this out there. I have to, I have to, I have to get this out here to submit to what's, what I desire in here. You see it Everywhere. Everywhere. But the Christian answer is the opposite. Christianity offers power and spiritual resources to do this, to subdue in here with what God is doing out here. So Paul writes in Philippians 4, I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low, how to, be, how to abound, he says. Do you see that there? In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now we know the last verse, don't we? We love that one. But the all things, the all thing God strengthens us to do, the great victorious work of his spirit in our lives is to cause us to be able to remain content no matter what is happening around us, to be quiet and calm on the inside. No matter how the storm is raging around us, to not lose our joy and peace when the heat gets turned up. Paul's inner life, and this is something we're going to talk about too, Paul's inner life was not affected by his circumstances. If he was abounding, it didn't change how he felt inside. If he found himself in need, he didn't start to panic. There was no connection. There was no, there was no connection between, whatsoever between what was going on outside around him and what he was feeling internally. The external storms he faced didn't produce an internal storm of fear or worry. And so he had sleepless nights and all of these things, but he was overflowing with joy, not wrapped with anxiety, because he'd learned, he says, the secret of contentment. Paul lived from the inside out, not the outside in. His inner life was not shaped by his external circumstances. And as a result, this is the amazing thing. What began to happen was that his external circumstances began to to be shaped by his internal joy and peace and comfort. His circumstances didn't have power to change his inner joy and peace. They didn't change his inner frame. But the joy and peace he lived with began to overflow and change his outer frame. And that's ultimately the hope Christianity offers. Let me finish with this. That story I told of Jesus in the boat... Uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, had a little meditation, a communion meditation on that passage. And he said, you know, what's interesting is that Jesus was still on the inside. He's asleep. They're panicked, right? They're freaking out. He's, he's still. And it was Jesus' stillness on the inside that allowed him to still the storm that was around him. And here are his words. And I, I want to just close with these words. They're just really great. He says, he that hath peace can make peace. Listen. We cannot work miracles, and yet the works which Jesus did we shall do also. So Spurgeon says, "'Sleeping his sleep, we shall awaken his rested energy "'and treat the winds and the waves as things subject to the power of faith, "'and therefore to be commanded into quiet. "'We shall speak so as to console others. "'Our calm shall work marvels in the little ships whereof others are captains. "'We too shall say, Pe- Peace, be still. "'Our confidence shall prove contagious, and the timid shall grow brave.' Our tender love shall spread itself and the contentious shall cool down in patience. Only the matter must begin with ourselves, within ourselves. We cannot create a calm until we are in a calm. It's easier to rule the elements than to govern the unruliness of our hearts. But when grace has made us master of our fears, so that we can take a pillow and fall asleep amid the hurricane, the fury of the tempest will be over. Isn't that great? It's the work God wants to do in us, and it's the work he set this communion table up to accomplish in us. So as we come to the communion table this morning, let's pray that he would do just that. Lord Jesus, as we gather around the table that you have set before us today, we do pray that as we feast upon your body and blood for us this morning, that it would so overwhelm us with the thought of your love and faithfulness to us, the provision that you have made for us, in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his death and resurrection on our behalf, that the internal storm that's raging in so many of us would be stilled, that we would find rest, and in finding rest, that we would be the agents of bringing rest to those around us, so that we as a community of faith, but ultimately so that our city and world might begin to experience the Sabbath rest that you have died to purchase for us so help us to be a people who strive to enter into that rest that our joy in you may be complete would you stay our minds on you that you might keep us in perfect peace because we trust in you lord we say help our unbelief that's exactly what you mean to do at this table and so we come to it in expectancy and faith and we pray these things in jesus name so the promise of this benediction, here's the way this works, okay? This is, this is the promise of God's love for you, his commitment to you, his, his abundant willingness to provide for you and to always care for you. This is the reality of your life, these words, not the circumstances that wait for you out there. In fact, what, what a Christian has to do is has to view whatever is waiting outside this room by the reality of what I'm about to speak over you, not the other way around. Don't let that be an evaluation of whether or not what I say is true, but let these words ring in your ears and then view whatever it is God sends you to through the lens of what he says to you in this benediction. So receive these words uh, and believe them in your heart by faith. This is the love song of the Father spoken over you and His promise to go with you as he sends you out now. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.